This season was made possible with support from the Government of Alberta's Heritage Preservation Partnership Program and Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, Southern Alberta. Well, I'm in over my head, no one told me. Trying to keep my footprint small was harder than I thought it could be. I'm in over my head, what do I really need? Trying to save the planet, oh, will someone please save me? Trying to save the planet, oh, will someone please save me? Welcome to In Over My Head. I'm Michael Bartz. While looking into the unique history of our provincial parks, I thought we should go way back and look at why geology really is cool. I'm Corey Gross. I'm a professional educator in uh, history and earth sciences here in Alberta. I've worked in the museum and heritage field here in Alberta for about 25 years. I've worked at the Glenbow Museum, the Calgary Zoo, um, Fort Calgary, Heritage Park, a number of different places. Uh, in 2021, I served as the historian in residence here in Calgary. Uh, it's a program co-sponsored by the, uh, the Heritage Calgary and the Calgary Public Library. And I'm also the president and public outreach coordinator of the Alberta Paleontological Society. And I have my own company, Sandstone Prehistoric Safaris, where I do uh, geotourism and earth science-based education programs. And in 2020, I published my, uh, my first book, The Ice Age in Western Canada, about the last 2.6 million years of history in Saskatchewan, Alberta, and British Columbia. So, so Corey, I thought, you know, when we look at the history of the parks, you know, you can go back maybe 50 or 100 years, but I thought, like, let's go way back. Let's go back to, like, the prehistoric times because, you know, there's so much rich history, geological or fossils or things like that within our parks. And I thought it'd be really interesting to, to learn about that from you. Do you think maybe briefly you could talk about, like, kind of like the, the ice age that we're in? Like, can you, could you give, like, a brief overview of kind of some of that? A brief overview of the last 2.6 million years. Yes, sure. yes. Please give me that. Sure. So um, we are currently in an ice age right now. An ice age is defined as a period of time when there is permanent ice at the poles. So right now we are still in an ice age because for the time being, we do still have permanent ice at the Arctic and the Antarctic. And there have been about five major ice ages over Earth's history. We happen to be in the most recent one, started 2.6 million years ago. And uh, basically how I would describe a, an ice age is that for about 80% of Earth's history, our climate has actually been very warm and very stable. Uh, it's a permanent greenhouse environment. And so warm, in fact, that we would actually consider it like quite uncomfortable. <laughs> and perhaps even at like sort of more equatorial latitudes, people wouldn't be able to survive. Like we're talking that kind of warmth. And But then these different factors all line up, having to do with the Earth's orbit and energy output from the sun and all that sort of stuff. Basically, the amount of energy that we get uh, fluctuates. These different things line up, and then suddenly our climate starts going haywire. So it goes from being really warm and really stable to just suddenly fluctuating wildly over the course of thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of years. Um, just going down low enough to have um, ice sheets spread across continents, and then shooting back up and warming up again, melting most of those ice sheets, but leaving the ice at the poles, and then back down, doing this over and over and over again. And in this last 2.6 million years, we've had um, glaciers advance about 50 different times. And we're currently living in an interglacial. So the last glacial maximum was about 20,000 years ago. That's when the glaciers were at their largest extent. They have now been retreating and are still are retreating. And um, that's sort of all of, all of written human history has been in this last interglacial episode. 
Yeah. And, and, and so within that ice age, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's where a lot of like these fossils are and, and some of the, the various geographical things that we might talk about. Yeah, well, a lot of the landscape that we see around us, you're driving around southern Alberta and you see these round ponds in the middle of nowhere, these sort of sinuous snake-like hills, um, various ridges and rills, and the beautiful you know, U-shaped valleys that have carved through the Rockies. Those are all glacial features. So our surface geology here in Alberta is very much shaped by the Ice Age. And, you know, I think, you know, when people think about some of that prehistoric history and the Ice Age, things like that, they might think about Dinosaur Provincial Park, um, Midland Provincial Park, the Royal Tyrell Museum. And I think those are all very interesting. But I thought, you know, for our conversation, maybe we could focus on some areas that maybe people didn't first think of when they thought of, of some of that ancient prehistoric history. So one place you mentioned was Castle Wildland Wilderness Provincial Park. Um, tell me a little bit about, about that. Sure. Well, I mean, just to set the stage in general... Um, Alberta is one of the best places in the world to be if you're into prehistoric life, because we have, you know, everybody knows again, as you mentioned, the dinosaur remains, the like best dinosaur uh, fossil deposits in the world. But we also have the Ice Age deposits, some of the best Ice Age stuff in North America. We have, um, you know, the Rockies are all primarily <laughs> rock from, you know, the, the Devonian, the Paleozoic stuff before the dinosaurs. Beautiful deposits of those. And also, you know, subsurface, that's where oil and gas comes from, are these rocks from before the age of dinosaurs, these ancient coral reefs that were here. And then we have rocks going back one and a half billion years. And that's what we find in Castle Wildland. So Castle Wildland is part of that whole crown of the continent uh, sort of area ecosystem environment that includes Waterton Glacier International Peace Park, Castle Wildland, Castle Provincial Park, and Crowsnest Pass area as well. It's going into British Columbia, but this is about Alberta. So we're not going to talk about that. Um, <laughs> but um, and those rocks are going back, you know, about 1.4 to 1.5 billion years back when um, we were part of a supercontinent called Columbia. And there's still some debate among scientists about exactly which other continent we were connected to, depending on which papers you read. The thought is that we were either in that area connected to Siberia or connected to Antarctica. <laughs> but right where, again, Waterton Glacier and Castle Wildland are, um, that was a rift valley. So that was the, the supercontinent of Columbia was rifting apart. And between them, you had this vast sort of playa lake, this dry lake, very shallow, that would experience these floods coming in from the mainland that are beyond anything we can even imagine today. Because one and a half billion years ago, well, there's nothing on land. So there's nothing to sort of constrain some of that erosion. So you just have these massive floods coming in into this uh, dry lake bed. And uh, depositing these massive package of, of sediments that today calculated about 18 kilometers thick is how much sediment is in this whole uh, rock system that we see in this area. And um, when you go down to Gimwarton Glacier or, or Castle Wildland and you're hiking around, and you see these you know, beautiful multicolored rocks, much different from you know, the Rockies further north where we have the blue Canadian Rockies, so the blues and grays. Instead, you have these greens and reds. The reds almost go down to purples and so on. And that's because of these shallow lake conditions. So the very, very shallow, you get, a lot, well, there's a lot of iron in the sediments. And at the very, very shallow conditions, the iron in those, those sediments would oxidize. That's where you get these red rocks that you see down there. 
in slightly deeper water, very slightly deeper water, um, it actually reduces so that iron turns green and you get these green layers of rock. And then when the water got even deeper, then you start to get more of the gray limestones because now enough of you know these, these organisms, <laughs> single-celled organisms that can move in and uh, they produce a lot of this calcite that becomes this limestone. That's also where we find stromatolites, which were the most advanced forms of life back then. So um, they're basically these these mounds are colonies of um, bacteria, and basically they're they're growing in a little patch on on the floor of this sort of saline lake bed. They're kind of sticky, so sediment gets deposited on top. They don't like that. They grow another layer, more sediment, another layer, and on and on and on it goes to get these sort of like cabbagey sort of layered mounds. And you can find fossils of those all through, again, Castle Wildland and, and Waterton Glacier. And uh, and then, you know, it would shallow out again. This is a constantly fluctuating system over 0.1 billion years. <laughs> you know, it's 0.1 billion years among friends, right? Uh, until eventually this whole, you know, lake system just rifted apart and the ocean moved in and the continents drifted on to reconnect another supercontinent a few hundred million years later. Oh, no, that's really interesting. And and like, like so like if someone were to go there, could they actually see those those different colors and things like that? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, um, I mean, it's hard to miss just as you're driving around, uh, heading down, heading down south there to see these hills with these swaths of green and red in there. And um, of course, the closer you get to them, the more you get to see of them, right? Um, you know, Waterton has some easy accessible exposures of these Red Rock Canyon in Waterton. But if you want to get away from the crowds in Waterton, that's where you go to Castle Wildland, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, on the, the, if you're heading south down to Waterton, you just turn right. There's signs there for the, the Shell Waterton Complex. And just drive around the giant shell plant there and the giant mounds of yellow sulfur and whatever else they're, they're extracting there. And uh, you go down to like Butcher Lake and uh, those areas and you get nice up and close to, to the mountains and just absolutely just stunning scenery. And uh, you can see those, those beds of red and swaths of green and things like that. And then if you want to um, go hiking into there along like the, uh, the shell development roads and things like that. You can actually get up to those layers. And you said you also like found like fossils while you've been there. Yeah. Well, the, um, uh, as I mentioned, the, the most advanced form of life at the time were these stromatolites. So you can find them in, uh, it's called the variously in, in the literature, uh, the Helena or the Saya formation. Um, but it's one of these, these bands of gray limestone could represent depths up to hundred meters, but as long as there's enough, you know, it's shallow enough that light can get through so that these stromatolites can grow. And um, so you find these, again, sort of cabbage looking round stromatolites in those layers, but in the, uh, the red and the green layers, because it was so shallow in this dry lake, you can find, um, we call trace fossils. They're fossils of environmental processes, whether it could be like animal trackways or in the case of, of the castle area, because there were no animals to make tracks yet. You find mud cracks, uh, you find ripple marks, things like that. Um, one of my favorite for how it, you know, how a moment in time can get captured for, for billions of years is you can have these rocks that have um, mud crack rip up clasts in them. So basically you would have this, this dry lake, right? The, the water level would recede. You'd have these mud cracks form and then coming down this river system, this massive flood, and it would rip up those mud cracks and then deposit them, deposit them elsewhere. And so when you're looking at the rocks, you can see like this, there's a band of red and then this band of quartzite 
which is sand that became sandstone, which then got metamorphosed over one and a half billion years into this very hard rock called quartzite. So you see this layer of quartzite, but it has these little chips of red in there. And those are those mud cracks that were ripped up by this water and then deposited later on amidst all this sand. And then you get another layer of red on top because more mud came in and then that cracked and so on. So it's like just capturing this one flood that happened one and a half billion years ago and captured it for eternity. It's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And like how close would you have to be to, to actually see those kind of details? You can just see them in like a little sample the size of your hand. You can, I mean, there are, there are of course, these magnificent specimens of ripples across this entire huge block. Um, but, uh, you know, just down in like the creek bed, you can find just little hand-sized samples of them, but do not take them from a provincial park. So not. you got to keep that in mind as well. <laughs> of course. Yes. Yeah. I want to protect it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I guess, was there anything else you wanted to mention about Castle specifically that makes it special or unique? One thing that's really also find exceptional about that area is that, you know, you have the rocks that were deposited, you know, one and a half billion years ago, super, super ancient rocks, the oldest rocks in the Canadian Rocky Mountains. But how those mountains were carved out into their current shape and the, uh, the area in front of them uh, you know, that whole area is sort of renowned as where the prairie meets the mountains because the foothills are actually buried underneath um, glacial till. And so that whole area is just also just ripe with all of these glacial features as well that were left behind by the glaciers coming out of the mountains. So you can see these kettle ponds, again, these these sort of round isolated ponds in the middle of, you know, prairie fields that were left by essentially icebergs, ice calved off of the glaciers and just, well, didn't have anywhere to float away, so just right in the middle of the prairies, and then eventually melted and left behind this depression that forms this kettle pond. You see these eskers and and caims. So caims are where um, you know you have like a, a landslide or a rock slide on top of a glacier, and then as the glacier melts away underneath it, that material just dumps and gets deposited and forms a hill. So, for example, the uh, the hill that the Prince of Wales Hotel in Waterton Lakes is is on, that's a came. That's debris that fell on top of the glacier. The glacier melted away and left this hill behind. Um, you see those, the drumlins, all that sort of stuff. You see just beautiful examples of down in that area. It's like an outdoor classroom for glacial geology features. Oh, that's really interesting, Corey. Um, um, and another area that, that you had mentioned that has some significance is the Kananaskis area. So tell me about that. One really weird, neat thing that um, most people might not even think about is that, you know, of course, the... Um, the rocks that make the Rockies today at various times were essentially continental shelf much of the time before dinosaurs. And that as North America was being pushed sort of northward and westward by the opening up of the Atlantic Ocean, um, after the last supercontinent, Pangaea, <laughs> you know, got the splitting apart, the, the Atlantic is opening up and it still is today pushing North America northward and westward. And again, still is the same speed your fingernail grows. And as North America was moving, it's colliding into these island chains on our west coast. And those island chains then get grafted onto the continent. And that's what actually forms most of British Columbia. You know, in fact, we, this process is still going on. So someday in the far future, Vancouver Island and Haida Gwaii will eventually become part of mainland British Columbia. They'll get just smushed onto their like previous mountain belts. And as those mountains got smushed onto the side of the continent, of course, it's pushing and compressing the continental shelf that had been built up in the time before the dinosaurs during Paleozoic. And then all that rock that formed, then, you know, it's, it's cracking, it's folding, 
it's being pushed and piled up, and that's what makes the Rocky Mountains. And so these cracks in the rock, we call those faults. And there is one, I mean, there's several major faults, and, and scientists like to name these things, so we know which one we're talking about. And there's a major one, the Lewis Thrust Fault. And that is the thrust fault that um, you can see down in the crown of the continent area, so the Castle Wildland, where it's pushed up these ancient, ancient, one and a half billion year old rocks on top of the much younger um, late Cretaceous rocks. So like 70, 80 million year old rock. Yeah, this one and a half billion year old rock on top of that got pushed up there by this thrust fault. Well, the Lewis thrust fault goes all the way north to about Mount Kidd in Kananaskis. That's the same thrust fault up there. So there's a bit of connection there. <laughs> it's going through, but very different rocks. Because once you get up to that area, then you're getting into these rocks that are about 370 to 350 million years old. And so now you have this continental shelf, well-established. Alberta was down by the equator, bottom of a warm, shallow, tropical sea, sandy beaches, coral reefs, all that kind of thing on islands uh, in this uh, this ancient tropical sea, tropical Alberta. You wouldn't have had tr palm trees swaying in the breeze though, because trees hadn't evolved yet. So you'd had giant uh, club mosses, giant ferns occupying the niche of trees. Um, for wildlife, while there weren't any birds or mammals or even reptiles yet, um, the dominant land animals would have been giant insects, like Arthropleura, it's a nine foot long centipede. <laughs> and giant dragonflies with wingspan of one or two meters. And so, you know, it depends <laughs> what, you're, what you're looking for in wildlife. But in the, uh, the tropical seas, you have these massive systems of coral reefs. And those reefs are depositing what would become this limestone that would become the blue Canadian Rockies 350 million years later. But also all the algae and plankton and coral and fish and stuff, you know, dies, sinks to the bottom, gets covered over, gets squeezed and squished over hundreds of millions of years, and gets liquefied and turned into oil and gas. So the rocks that we see exposed in the Kananaskis, those are also the same rocks that are under the ground at places like Leduc, and that's where they're drilling for oil. These ancient reefs, both the biomass in them, the what used to be, you know, algae and everything, is making the oil, and then the the reef rocks themselves form a perfect reservoir, all these little spaces in there. You can drill into that. So that's what sort of the, the larger story going on there. But what I find particularly neat about Kananaskis and discovering this is, you know, during COVID and everywhere shut down, there's nothing to do but drive around. So <laughs> let's go, let's go explore places we haven't seen before and driving down around through Kananaskis and so on. And noticing um, all these mountain building processes and all that squeezing and squishing and compressing and breaking and piling up that was going on since the, the time of the dinosaurs to build up the Rockies. You can see those processes in Kananaskis. So Mount Kidd, which I already mentioned, um, beautiful, beautiful folds in there. So you can actually um, like see it's just compressed like an accordion or something. And you see these anticlines, which are where it's folded upwards and synclines where it's folded downwards. And just imagine like taking a piece of paper and just, you know, you, you push the two ends towards each other and it makes the, the uphills and the downhills as it's squeezing together. You, you see like that exact process on, on Mount Kidd um, in Ptarmigan Cirque, whereas the Cirque is a bowl-shaped depression in the, the mountains where a glacier starts. And um, so, you know, snowpack builds up. Uh, eventually enough snow gets piled on that it becomes ice under its own weight, and enough ice gets built up that under its own weight, it begins to flow. That's when it becomes a glacier. And so the snowpack, you know, builds up in a divot in the mountains, and then as it starts to flow, it carves that out into a bowl-shaped 
depression and then flows out to meet the larger glacier that's flowing through the entire valley and carving out that whole valley. So um, Ptarmigan Cirque is a beautiful place to go and get up uh, like into one of those cirques and to see you know wh where a glacier got its start from up there, although it's not a glacier up there anymore. And then um, I'm just a little bit further north of, of Kananaskis there. Um, when you get around Barrier Lake and Mount Yamnuska, so in a Bow Valley Provincial Park there, you're actually also seeing another thrust fault. This is the McConnell thrust fault this time. And what it's done, it's taken Cambrian rocks, about 500 million year old rock, and pushed that up on top of, again, that late Cretaceous rock. So again, like 70, 80 million years old. And Mount Yamnuska, and that's the most famous example, really easy to see. You have that massive cliff forming limestone, a Cambrian limestone there. And then you have that this very abrupt line and this gently sloping base of Cretaceous shale. That's the McConnell thrust right there. But if you're stopping, you know, going to Kananaskis, stop off at Barrier Lake, and you look at the mountain, just Yates Mountain, just across uh, from the lake, and you can see that same line right there. So you can see all these geologic processes at work for what built the Rockies and what they are today. Also, you had mentioned it might be worth talking about Sheep River Provincial Park. Mm -hmm. What's what's going on there? All right. So Sheep River has. An amazing, wonderful, beautiful surprise. And I'm not sure how many people notice this surprise, but if you're a big rock geek like I am, then you're just like, what? Blows the mind. So if you're driving into to Sheep River, Shell Park, stop at the the turnout there for Sheep Sheep River Falls. And as you're walking along the, the riverfront there, there is um, a syncline and anticline system there right at ground level. And so there's one spot where you'll notice if you're walking along that the rocks are kind of curved. It's like sort of like a bowl, something like that. And you can step like right smack in the middle of this curvature. And that is a syncline right there. So that's again, you know, this fold in the mountains, you're standing right in the middle of this, this curve. And then if you look across the creek and you know, you, you look at the, um, the opposite shoreline and you know, it's pretty, it's been, sheared off and whatever. But if you look closely at the rocks that are exposed and you can see an anticline, you can see some rocks rising, I'm using my hands on a podcast, <laughs> you can see these rocks rising up on one side at an angle and then coming down on the other side at sort of the opposite angle. The top has been sheared off though. So you see the sort of sheared off anticline there. And so, you know, you're looking at this, again, this folded system, right? So you got the downward fold and the upward fold, and both have been kind of sheared off. So you can actually step right into the middle of the downward fold, the syncline, and look across the creek to see the the sheared off remains of the upward fold, the anticline. So it's sort of a neat little thing. I mean, most people go ooh ah at the waterfall, which is great, um, but there's the geologic features there. And you know, it, while you're trying to look for this anticline and syncline system there, you know, look down at the rocks as well. And you see lots of ripple marks, things like that as well. These ripples that have been preserved in stone. No, 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 that's super interesting. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, another place that that you think you, you said was worth talking about was Cypress Hills. What uh, what makes that space unique? Well, Cypress Hills is a fascinating place <laughs> because it's actually the highest point in Canada between the Rockies and Labrador. <laughs> And as a consequence, um, the, the tips of it were actually not covered by glaciers during the Ice Age. And uh, it also helps that there's a very resistant layer of, um, of rocks and gravel 
at the top of it that was deposited by ancestral rivers that predate the Ice Age. Um, but depositing all this very tough rock there, um, that helped to shield the Cypress Hills a bit as well. But basically, you know, glaciers, they're water, right? It's frozen water, but it's still water. So as they're flowing, you know, they're following the same rules more or less that water does. So it's a lot easier to go around something rather than over top of something. So the ice initially, you know, wants to just go around Cypress Hills. It doesn't really want to go over top of it. So during the last ice age, well, Cypress Hills, at least the, the very top peaks of it, were not covered by glaciers. We call that a nunatak. And um, very probably, uh, don't know for sure about animals, but uh, for a lot of plant life, that would have been a place for them to eke out you know, some kind of existence at the top of this, against rocky outcrop amidst this sea of glacial ice. And like one last place we wanted to focus on, although it's not really a provincial park, you know, um, one area that I found really interesting in, in your book was talking about the St. Mary's Reservoir. Um, something interesting was going on there. So tell me about that. Yeah, well, those little provincial recreation spots alongside dams and things can be really neat places as well. Now, St. Mary's Reservoir, uh, the Wally's Beach, that area, that is actually the site, uh, an incredible Ice Age paleontology site, but also uh, the oldest evidence for human beings in Alberta found down there. So during the 1990s is when this, this site came to attention. Um, there had been you know, a drop in water levels in general, and they were doing work on the dam. So they had to lower the level of the dam. And that exposed these vast, you know, dusty flats, <laughs> silty flats that were underwater. And as the wind in that area ripped through, as it is wont to do, um, it exposed this vast trackway system from the ancient um, St. Mary's River Valley down there. And right at Wally's Beach was actually a perfect access point for a wide variety of different animals to go down to the ancient St. Mary's River and get a drink, right? It's a watering hole. And so they found tracks of mammoths, camels, muskox, caribou, all down there, horses as well. The tracks are so good, you know, one of the mammoths had a limp in his back left leg. And also finding um, skeletal remains of horses, camels, muskox, and a scimitar cat. A scimitar cat is a relative of the more famous saber-toothed cat, Smilodon. Smaller teeth, and at least in some areas, seems to maybe have specialized in hunting young mammoths as well, finding their remains you know, quite often with a lot of young mammoth bones and things like that. Um, at least in some areas, um, of course. These animals ranged across North America, so hunting different things in different places. And that not all that alone is incredible, <laughs> you know, finding the horse bones and camel bones and scimitar cats and mammoth footprints and all that sort of stuff. But also a lot of these horse bones show evidence that they've clearly been butchered by humans. So we're talking like sections of rib with cobblestones placed on top of them. Um, they found various spear tips and, and um, stone flakes and things like that used in the sort of defleshing process, the butchering process. And uh, some of these spear tips have... Um, blood residue on them that have been DNA tested and they found that it's horse blood. So basically the ancestors of, of uh, uh, Nitsitapi, Blackfoot people, were here 13,300 years ago, lying in ambush at the watering hole and uh, jumping on these small groups of horses and, and hunting them. The, the last uh, uh, papers that I read on, on the subject of um, 
sort of taphonomy, the, the depositional process of a fossil or a trace fossil in this case, was suggesting that, you know, these would represent tracks from a single season, possibly even like a single event. So maybe like a week and then got buried or something like that, but at least a season, right? So that's like, you know, th this one layer of trackways that they found might represent like a single summer, 13,300 years ago. And they're constantly going back there as well. Uh, you know, whenever the, the researchers, you know, get, get word that, you know, from a local or whatever that like, Hey, there's more tracks like, <laughs> and off they go. Got to get down there. Um, before the wind blows them away as well. Cause it's a little tricksy down there with the wind and then the water coming in, filling up the dam and all that sort of stuff. So it's a very narrow window of opportunity to go down there, poke around, take casts or photos of any of the prints, see what else they can find in way of uh, bones or also evidence of humans as well, like hearths and things like that, you know, fire boiling pits for, you know, getting deflushing <laughs> bones and things like that. Um, narrow window of opportunity, but yeah, these would be representing often like a, sing like a single season. Yeah, yeah. I know I find that interesting because it seems like, you know, all of those animals and, and the people that were there were, you know, potentially like interacting together, right? Kind of gives you a picture of what that looked like in time, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's even, um, you know, of the, um, yeah, like seven or some odd uh, different horse skeletons that have evidence of, of human butchering. You can even tell sort of what was going on in the minds of the people as they were doing it just by what's sort of missing, what's there, that sort of thing. You figure out like, okay, on this one, they were like, hurry up, get the good stuff and let's go. This one, they were a little more leisurely with, <laughs> things like that. And this is why I love this stuff so much is that you, know, you have just these, these little snippets, these little moments, this one animal, this one flood, this you know one uh, butchering on this one day on this one season, however thousands or millions or billions of years ago, this gets preserved for eternity, right? It's the, it's the closest thing we have to time travel. You know, we can't go back in time, but the past can come through to us through these fossils and, and traces and remains and so on. Yeah, it kind of leads to my my follow-up question there. You know, you kind of answered it a little bit, but you know, like yeah, like why why do you find this work so important and, and so fascinating to do that you would, you know, spend so much time doing it? Why does it matter to you? To me, I think it's really important because it answers those why questions. Where did we come from? What happened before us? Why are things the way they are? Why does that hill look like that? Where we're recording here, we're right near Fish Creek Provincial Park. Why does that exist? What made that, right? Why is there this very broad, shallow, sort of flat bottom valley with this tiny little creek running through? Did that tiny little creek make that? Well, no, actually, it's a spillway of water from Glacial Lake Calgary emptying out and following the, the front of the glacier back eastward. Um, you know, it, it explains why are things the way they are? Why is it this way? And by understanding why it's the way it is, then we can, you know, figure out, have, have, be better informed for how to manage it going into the future. Plus, just cool. I think it's just neat. Dinosaurs are cool. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And I, mean, I think you know when when you describe some of these places to me, you know, I've I've been to some of them, and I know nothing about any of this stuff. If I'm being honest, you know, it's I, I quite in over my head on this topic for sure. And yeah, I think you know the way you describe it and reading your book and learning about some of them, you know, it made me appreciate these places in a new way because I, I feel like you know so many times we go to the very famous places and and people will take a selfie in front of a sign or in front of a famous a famous mountain. You know, but they don't really take the time to to look at those places and to notice those subtleties and, and to spend time. Um, do you think people need to, to do that more to appreciate those spaces? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that, that was a lot of the purpose of my book as well, that it's it's not just abstractly about, oh, 
you know, the ice age in Western Canada. I specifically want to include places where you could go and see the thing because I want for people to be able to read that or to you know hear this podcast or whatever, and to be able to look at those rocks and understand why they're there, what story they're telling, and to sort of be able to see with those different layers, right? On the one hand, you're seeing the mountains, but then you can also like practically see, you know, that ancient dry lake bed or whatever. You know, when I'm driving across the prairies, <laughs> going to wherever, doing a tour or something like that, like I can't help but see like, oh, there's a glacial spillway, there's an esker, da 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 da. I want other people to have that curse as well. Um, that, you know, you, you don't just see the thing, you see the process that made it as well. And I sincerely believe that deepens and enriches your connection with these places as well, right? That it's not just going and grabbing the selfie and seeing the beautiful lake or whatever, which is great, but then you can also see it on these other levels and these deeper levels and, and feel more connected to it because you understand it more. And yeah, yeah. And, you know, and talking about that and, you know, appreciating these places, I think, you know, protecting them is also important too, right? If you want to, you know, ensure that these places are preserved, you know, what can people do? Yeah, it's, it's so touchy because how do you best manage these spaces that allow for, allow for protecting them, but also allow for people to use them as well. I mean, I, 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 I don't know how saucy you want me to get on your podcast, but you know, I, I do admit a certain amount of frustration sometimes, say going down to Castle Wildland and seeing these beautiful fossils and, and trace fossils and things there. Um, and you know, not not being able to to collect them, which you are allowed to collect fossils in Alberta, surface collect them. You're not the owner of them. The province is the owner. The crown is the owner of fossils found in Alberta. But you as a finder of a, a fossil on the surface can be a custodian for that fossil. Except, of course, in provincial parks. You know, we have to leave them there as part of the, the natural processes that these parks are preserving. But then, you know, it was a, a shell road I hiked up to get to <laughs> that site, um, dodging grazing cattle along the way. It's like, okay, how are these being used? And I, and I don't want to, you know, say no to this, no to that, but how... It's letting government officials, letting people in charge know how these spaces are used, how you'd like for them to be used, how you like them to be protected, uh, sort of thing. So being involved just in advocacy, you know, writing to your MLA, meeting with your MLA, talking about your concerns with these spaces and, and how they're being used or how uh, opportunities you'd like to see in them, um, how they should be protected and those sorts of things. That's probably the the number one thing I can think of um, <laughs> for uh, what what an individual person can do, and of course learning about them as well, learning about why these spaces are important, what's to see, what's it's protecting. You know, bringing that dimension of time as well into things. You know, when I look at the um, you know the ecosystems that we have today, right? They're they're composed of ice age survivors, right? Because you know mallard ducks and the Canada geese and the black bears and the the mule deer and, and all sorts of stuff, they're also ice age animals. You know, chickadees were flitting around uh, alongside woolly mammoths. Um, they just happen to survive. And so it's a little bit sad, <laughs> you know, because now, now I, I see what's missing as well. Like there should be mammoths here, but it's also then that drive to protect what's left, right? To, to protect these survivors so they continue to survive, right? And that's an important role that these parks play. Next time on Remembering Alberta Parks, I learn about archaeology and dig up some history in Glenbow Ranch Provincial Park. 
So this quarry is unique because it provided this sandstone that built the government buildings when Alberta became a province. And doing the research on it at McDougall's school, for example, I can look at the one door and I know the name of the man who built it and I know how long he spent carving those details around that window and around that door and it's, it really makes it mean more when you know the name of the person and what their life might have been like. In Over My Head's Remembering Alberta Parks was produced by Michael Bartz with production assistance from Shinichi Hara. Special thanks to all the guests who gave generously of their time and expertise. I'm trying to save the planet, oh will someone please save me? This season was made possible with support from the Government of Alberta's Heritage Preservation Partnership Program and Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society Southern Alberta.